Good morning. We stand for the reading of God's Word. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, He has consecrated those He has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 23. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of, our heart, of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are satisfied with the good things. But when you hide your face, they are terrified 
and when you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. But when you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Father, we come to you asking, will you open your hands? We come to you hungry. We come to you feeling disappointed with ourselves, with our circumstances that have crashed into our living room walls. We feel sucker punched and cold. But we heed your invitation to open wide our mouths that you might fill them. So will you do that? Will you open up your hand and satisfy us with good things? Oh, please, Holy Spirit, do not abandon the works of your hands. We invite you now. Amen. As we edge towards the fall, we are in the middle of talking about this series called Open Our Eyes, which has been lifted as a phrase from Elisha, who gives his terrified servant a little remedial lesson on serving the Lord of hosts as he quakes in his boots and his knees knocked together and he's besieged with his little house by the Aramaeans. And he says, quick, get the arsenal. What are we going to do? Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And then he prays, oh Lord, open his eyes. And suddenly there is an alteration of this man's perception as if a curtain or a wardrobe for some of you has been opened up into another world beyond the curtain of visibility realities that are generally unseen. And there he sees chariots of fire. There he sees forces for assistance that are meant to comfort him, that help him to know that he can count on safety because his Lord is on his side. One of the Bible's preoccupations may not be one of ours, and it is namely that we have perception problems. We have vision problems, so we're asking as we move towards the fall when so many obligations, opportunities, and requirements are going to be placed on you, and they're going to feel like emergencies, and they're going to be right in front of your face, and they're going to be clamoring, and they're going to be loud, and they're going to be insistent, and we're, we're trying to step back and say, Lord, would you open our eyes that our perceptions might match ultimate reality, not merely what we see in front of us. A story was reminded to us this week. Miss Boozer reminded us of this story, and I think Corby shared this when I heard it. I think he shared this a while back, but it reminds me of what we're talking about today, that the Bells had this terrible situation that some of you have experienced yourself. They were at the beach, and their three-year-old son at the time, Archie, was 
was under their care and then suddenly not. They couldn't find him. And while I don't know all the details, there was a frantic, as you could imagine, search and rescue mission underway. They were frantic. Where is this boy? Where might he be? What might have happened to him? And they were beside themselves looking for him and trying to locate this little one. And when at last they did, they were asking him, if I have the details right, what, what were you thinking while you were away from us, when you were lost? And he said, well, I... I guess I just concluded that this is going to be my life now. (laughs) A beachcomber existence for this young three-year-old. Meandering along the Gulf Shore, picking up seashells. Maybe a poet. An orphaned poet? I don't know. This is just my life now, I guess. And it's a funny story. And especially since it ended happily, the boy's here today. He gave me permission to share the story. But I think it captures something that Zephaniah is talking about here and something that the Apostle Paul counteracts in the Ephesians passage. Because this thing can overtake us. This predisposition to indifference, this case of the meh that can overtake us when it comes to God because we get beat down by this sort of a gray drizzle of disappointment. The circumstances come into your life that you desperately need to be gone and they don't go away and they ruin everything. Or you just simply, you get enough, life is humming along decently, and it's easy just to live as if God doesn't exist. Especially when you can wake up in the morning and you don't wonder, what am I going to eat today? You, can, you rejoice because you have a pantry and full of locally grown organic products. Or a refrigerator, not a pantry, I guess. If you need medical care, you're not counting on the heavens. You've got a doctor to go to and medicine to get. and No one around us is reinforcing any sort of reality beyond the one we can see. What you need is money. What you need is to be healthy. The most important thing is to keep your children from sugar. If you do that, then you will have one. And so we get a little cattywampus. Our priorities become so... They seem so important. But God's out there somewhere in the distance, and we get to where we don't expect nothing. Like the little boy on the beach. I guess this is just my life now. Now, what's amazing about that story, of course, from the parent's perspective, is how incredibly ridiculous it is. Because there, is no, there are no parents in here who could understand how a child would come to the conclusion, this is just my life now, because they know the electrical currents of forces of compassion in them that say, we will not be okay until you're okay. We will be furious in our unwellness to come after you until we are made well by your nearness to us. They couldn't be okay until their little one was with them again. They could not conceive, you cannot conceive, 
how your kids could assume that nothing is going to happen, that you're not going to fuss over them. And that's part of God's incredulousness here. The Israelites in Zephaniah are being told, these, or the Judahites, they're being told of impending judgment of the Babylonians who are going to wreck everything about their lives. And the Babylonians are going to be an instrument of God's meeting out punishment because they have chucked him aside. They flushed their faith. They don't need him anymore. They don't think of him anymore. They've adopted all the customs of the nations. They've come to think in all the ways the people around them think, and they've neglected utter reality. They've neglected their own story, which was formed in rescue, which was born out of deep desperation where they were enslaved and they cried out in their enslavement and God concerned about them, heard them and raised up a leader named Moses who whipped the Egyptians and let them self-plunder, handing the Israelites all their stuff as they parted because God was leading them out. God hurled the Egyptian riders into the See and parted its ways and said, you'll be my treasured possession of all the nations of the earth. You'll be mine. This founding event of rescue should be at the centerpiece of their lives and they should understand that nothing about our lives can happen without this Yahweh, without this one true living God. And they've come to be comfortable and the lazy boys of their indifference. They're rifling through their Netflix shows, and they, they've got no concern for God. They don't even have to think about God because they've got Fortnite, and they've got Instagram, and they never have to even give him a thought because there's never a moment of unpleasantness that has to come to them that they can't push aside quickly by reading something new, by watching something new, by staying frantically busy. Not quite, but he threatens them this way. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. I think about that phrase. Has that sort of apathy overtaken It certainly can. The Lord will do nothing, either good nor bad. What do you you mean when you come to adopt a kind of thinking like that? Well, generally, you don't come to think that explicitly. You don't arrive there by some reasoned analysis. You just kind of drift to there. And God shows these these Israelites, of course, this, this threat because... He's doing very much the same as these AT&T texting and driving commercials would do. You know these commercials? They're very stark. And they're very heavy-handed. You're like, come on, AT&T! Of course, you say that if you're actually watching them. And you're actually imagining yourself to be a participant. Someone who could be so preoccupied with some tiny reality 
like a text message, that you could avoid a collision, that you'd be unaware, unthinking towards the bigger realities outside of you. And so they tell these terrible stories about calamities befalling families because a dad looked at his text message when mom was saying, Fluffy's gone. Now you can read that and you say, watch that and say, ah, that would never happen to me because we all know modern people don't die. How can you die? You have the internet. If you have a 401k, there's no way you could die. Nothing could happen to you. This is a favorite joke of mine that I keep saying, and it never gets a laugh, so I don't know why I keep doing it. (laughs) But it does strike me as a particularly modern kind of issue, except Pascal said the same thing. He said that men, and, you know, in that day he would just say men, and he would mean people, that they that they have this vulnerability. They think, oh gosh, we're going to die one day. And so the way they deal with that, this reality of their impermanence, like that you're not going to last, that plastic's going to last longer than you, they think, wow, that seems really frightening. That seems really terrible. That seems really stark. That seems really big. I better not think about that ever. I better make sure I stay good and distracted every moment of my life if I can And, of course, then you start to think, well, maybe God's not involved in nothing. Maybe I shouldn't expect nothing of him. Maybe this is just my life now. And God's warning, as he always does, in the hopes that he doesn't have to carry out the warning, AT&T does not want you to text and drive. They don't want that story about that dad getting crashed into or crashing into someone. To be true of you. They wanted to wake you up. They wanted to say. Hello. Did that scare you? That's what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to scare you. It's supposed to make you woke. In, the, in a right good way. They think of the Lord. The Lord will do nothing. Either good or bad. And what would you be thinking. If you got to where you thought. The Lord's not going to really do anything. Well, wouldn't that be the same thing. As thinking the Lord is not anything. He can't be counted on. He doesn't hear us. He doesn't care about us. He's not involved in the world. Maybe he doesn't even exist. You know, as parents, one of the most ridiculous things a child could say in a huff of anger is some crazy thing like, you don't love me. It's the kind of thing that would make you want to kill your child (laughs) because you love them. How dare you? How dare you cast dispersion on the enormity of my Herculean affection for you, you little idiots? <laughs> my kids have never said that. Our kids have never said that. Sorry, they're not my kids. But I can remember, I think I've said something like that to my parents in some heat of pre-hominid human state adolescent angst. Just saying things because I was just discharging all the nastiness within me. I think how stupid that is now that I'm a parent. 
And how stupid it would be if you're God for people to walk around like little ants thinking they're very important and they have lots of power and they can make lots of things happen. And they're thinking, what's God going to do? And they act like that nothing's going to ever happen to them and they don't have to answer for the life that they've been given and that they might, there might be a purpose bigger than theirs. There might be a wisdom more stark and wonderful than what they've come up with. There might be assistance available to them that they haven't yet conceived or availed themselves of. There might, be, there might be something that they're meant to hope for, scary as it can be. Because on the other side of their hope is a heart that is huge, that is for them and wants what's right for them. There is this predisposition to indifference that exists within us that makes us easy to say, the Lord ain't going to do nothing. We can't expect nothing of him or from him. And so we give ourselves to trivialities, to certain kinds of perfection, to certain kinds of health, to certain kinds of diets, to certain kinds of accumulation and acquisition. Accomplishment. But I want to contrast. I want to contrast this predisposition to indifference, this apathy that can overtake us so easily where we think the Lord's not going to do anything good or bad with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians who gives us a little snapshot in a very short amount of space from before there was time to the time he was in. And what he's doing is he's putting us in the way of getting our indifference shocked out of us. Have you ever gotten a tune stuck in your head? Or some lyric, something you picked up on the radio? And sometimes you like that and you find yourself bebopping everywhere you go. And you're singing Kanye West or Taylor Swift. Does she still exist, Taylor Swift? But, I don't know. But then sometimes you get something stuck in your head that you don't want to be stuck in your head. Why is this in my head? It drives you nuts. And sometimes the music just dies, so you understand what Don McLean was talking about. There's just a deadness, and there's no music. And... You heard me mention Winnie the Pooh last week. Pooh says, uh, in Winnie the Pooh, it says, poetry and hums are not things that you get. They're things that get you. The poetry, words that bring you to life. Beautiful words that rearrange you and concoct realities within you. Music that, that puts a spring in your step and animates your life. You don't get these things. They get you, and you know how that works. What you have to do is put yourself in the position where you can be got by those poetries and hums. Poetries is, is, a, is a plural of poetry that I just made up. And so what the apostle does is gives us an example of this, how you could put yourself in the way of where the poetry of God and the hums of God, the music of the ages that's meant to reverberate in you can be got by you. 
And it has to do with his words, and it has to do with his action and prayer. See, Paul says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, and I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you are called, the riches of his inheritance, his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for those who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and exalted him above all powers, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. It can happen that you get to where you don't expect nothing. The Lord will do nothing, neither good nor bad. He's not going to act. He isn't anything. By contrast, you see the apostle, frequently imprisoned, often beaten, often bruised, often deprived, saying, I keep thanking God. I keep asking God. I keep on. Hutch taught me how to say can't and own. I keep on. I keep on asking. But see, because he thinks that one of the things we need more than we realize is not merely a change of circumstance. Most of us think there are circumstances in our life that are quite terrible. And I know for a fact, a great number of you are dealing with very treacherous, debilitating circumstances that are ruining you at the moment. And there would be nothing finer than God taking those out of your life, reversing their effects, scrubbing them off the whiteboard of your existence. But for some reason, he's not. And so it gets easy to preoccupy and to focus on these circumstances got to be gone. If they're not gone, if they don't get away, then I can't live. I can't be okay. And of course, if you're starving, you don't have any food, food would be nice. God tells us to pray for your daily bread. There's all kinds of things that really a little drop of kindness from God, a provision from others, will we'll, we'll take care of some things. But it's interesting what Paul prays here as he does expect the Lord to do something because he knows that the Lord has been up to something throughout the ages, whether it has been apparent to people or not. He knows that we are prone to indifference. He knows we're prone to a sort of spiritual drift and decay. He knows that we groan with the creation, that things don't go well for us. But he also knows that God has been active and that we are a pre-loved people. And that before time began, God himself was concocting some magnificent plan whereby we could be rescued and his and well-fathered, even when it feels like we're not. And so the apostle thinks, and you remember the apostle said, The word and prayer are our preoccupation in Acts 6. We must give ourselves, give our attention to the ministry of the word and prayer. Nothing can interrupt that because they know that that is the chief way that people like us get snapped out of our indifference, of the coldness of our apathy 
of the deadness of our rebellions and closed offness to God. And so here you have the apostle praying in the word of God. And what does he pray? That the glorious Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. It's very interesting to me. I think if God would help me lose weight, then everything would be fine. You're like, oh, why would you need to lose weight, Eric? You look like a model. I know, but not that kind of model. I think circumstances in my life, you think circumstances in your life, they need to be altered. Paul thinks we need to know God. If you knew God, if you had this wisdom that the Spirit would give, if you had insight into who he was and what he was like, you'd never, one, walk along the earth and think, well, I guess this is just my life now. You would never... Stop expecting from God His provision, even if you've prayed about one particular thing and it's not come true. Or you've planned about one thing and it's not come to fruition. You would know that you're a fathered person as the apostle does. And so he thinks this is what needs to happen. You need to know Him. He thinks there's something so spectacular about God that if you should know it, It would be more sustaining than a kale smoothie. If you should know it, it would carry you. Because he's carrying you. It would take some of the alarm away when the vulnerabilities of this life threaten us. And they do. And he knows he's tasted himself this knowledge of God so deeply that he says... I know him in such a way that whatever I've lost, I now consider trash heap stuff. I now consider it stuff I had to have when I was a kid. And I look at it now and go, why did I want that? And I I could just chuck it. It doesn't even matter to me anymore because it's so precious to know God. And I think for most of us, the preciousness of knowing God like that is a little bit elusive. We have little glimpses. We have little tastes, but not so much. It's an aspiration. He knows it, but he also knows if we're going to know it, then God's going to have to act. He has a profound sense that our perceptions are going to have to be changed. So he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You know, there are different ways of seeing the eyes of your heart. This is like your inner capacity to intuit things, to perceive things, how you, how you Interpret what's going on around you, the take that you have. Some of you have known the experience. You might have heard me say here, my gla- I've not worn these in public really yet. But I feel like I walk around our house sometimes and in certain situations. I feel, I feel like, an, like a, a much older man than I am. And I even, it even makes me feel like I'm talking like that. Why is it so dark in here? Why is it so dark everywhere? I can't see nothing in there. Because that's what happens. Is you turn a certain age and then suddenly all print, even though Paul says, I write with such large letters in Galatians, that all print becomes like little six-point times New Roman. And everything feels too dark. 
And you just feel agitated all the time. I can't say nothing. And Paul says, I know. Tell me about it. Paul probably had an eye condition, but that's a whole other issue. But Paul says, so what I pray is that the Holy Spirit would be like a light switch that brightens up things so you can finally see the letters clearly. The letters of God's involvement, the letters of God's intention, the letters of the God who's working out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will and who is authoring a story of which you get to be a part, where you get to exist for the praise of his glory and one day will receive praise from him. The one for whom you were made. He's authoring a story where at the end of it, you will be delighted in. And he'll go, wow, well done. And Paul wants you to know it. And so he says, I want you to understand it. I want God to flick open the switch. And he knows that the Spirit of God is necessary for these things to happen. He knows, he says in Corinthians, that no one knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit that is within him. And that the Spirit takes the thoughts of God and makes them known to us. How do we get the Spirit? By believing, he says, the word of truth. As we believe the scriptures, as we put ourselves in the place where these poetries of God, these hums, this music of God is sung, these things can come alive in us. The Spirit can take the thoughts of God and make them known to us and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Do you need emancipation? Then you need the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Do you need to have the bars of your yoke broken so that you may walk with your head held high? You need the bars of your prison bent so that you may praise his name? You need the spirit of God who takes from what is Christ and makes it known to us. And Paul thinks that is something that happens through prayer. Asking God. I keep asking God. The glorious Father He's so magnificent. He's so splendorous. He's so remarkably great that I can ask him anything. I make outlandish requests of him. Childish seeming requests of him. Do you? Because he's so magnificent. And what I want him to do is work in you in such a way that you can see how glorious he is. Because it will change everything for you. Even if you only see it for moments at a time. It will give you hope when everything has gone dark. That's why you can say things like, I know him whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard it until that day. That's how you can keep trusting when you're in prison. And trusting Christ means that you don't have a retirement plan and you get a lot of scars on your backs. He knows that something better is coming and that he's got resources right now to handle the most awful things. Because he has a glorious father who can help him to see. You have a perception problem. I have a perception problem. And it it just comes up all the time. And so we have to keep coming back. Coming back to worship. Coming back to the scriptures. Coming back to prayer. So that we can be reawakened. Paul thought there were forces acting on you. You know he tells Timothy. The Lord's servant mustn't quarrel. Yeah, I need to remember that one. The Lord's servant mustn't, mustn't quarrel, but he must be gentle. 
And he must gently instruct people in hopes that the Lord will grant them repentance and will release them from the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do as well. Sheesh. He thinks that somebody who's belligerent against Christianity is being acted on by the devil. Okay. Do you think that? Well, then you might need God's help to defeat him. Thankfully, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil so we have an ally. And we have a fighter for us, even though our arm is tied behind our backs. He says the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. And that that when someone gets converted, when somebody comes to see, or when we're just wearied, and we get brought back to life. The word of God, like in the beginning, which brings life, brings life to us. The apostle wanted the word of God and prayer, this wisdom from God and this revelation from the spirit to give us the power and the perception to see aright and that knowing God was what we would need to be able to endure. If you start to believe that, you'll, you'll alter the way you're coming towards God. See, some of the time we stop praying because we haven't been answered. We just give up. Now, you know, that's different than indifference. Some of you are so discouraged right now, you can't stand it. God's been so silent, so negligent, so seemingly impervious to your plea for compassion. He doesn't seem to care. That's what it feels like. And so you're discouraged and you say, okay, I give. And you don't, you don't want to keep praying to him. You don't want to keep asking. It's hard to keep hoping. Well, you realize that's the exact opposite of indifference. You're disappointed and crushed because you expected so much. I'm trying to comfort you even though it sounds like I'm yelling. Do you realize that? That's why you're discouraged. You're discouraged because you have such confidence in God, not because you have no confidence in Him. That's what happens. If you start to believe that God's really good, that He really likes you, not just loves you, eh, likes you. He thinks you're swell. He wants to be with you. He wants a relationship with you. He, he has taken great pains to make this possible. He's been working out all history so it can happen. And so you can live with him in a newly made world where sorrow is banished and sighing is, has been executed with him. He wants that to happen. And if you expect much of him, then you're going to have disappointments. Because even though all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, they don't get all answered by next Tuesday, and that's exasperating, especially when we need help today. But if you start to believe this glorious Father has a power that can raise the dead, this this glorious Father with whom you have great disappointment and maybe a new lethargy of spirit because he seems so absent... You can start being incredibly honest with him when you keep asking him. When you're displeased with yourself, when you're displeased with your circumstance, when you don't understand what's happening, you can say with utter honesty, with a kind of touching audacity, like, I don't get this. I thought you were supposed to be the one the great physician who heals, why are you letting this sickness remain? 
I thought that you were reconciling all things to yourself through the death of your son. How comes there's this rift between us, between them, between my friends? Why? You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to do something to my perception. You're going to have to do something to their perception. It gives you this honesty when you start recognizing that you have a glorious father who's up to things that you don't always know and I don't always know. But it makes you very honest. I was called one time late at night on a Saturday. I go out and pray and, and ready on uh, 8 o'clock on Saturdays, used about 1 at the Lula Lake site. And I got a call from a child. It was one of mine. It was late. While I was pre- prepping for a sermon, they were asking if we could get a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought it was awesome. They might not have thought the way I answered was awesome. But I thought it was awesome. It was a kind of touching audacity. That you would think of your father like, I don't know what he has going on. I don't care. Yeah, sure, it's almost midnight, but uh, we need a puppy. (laughs) So I think I'll call him about that. And I answered, because I like my kids, our kids. I like them a lot. They're better than yours. <laughs> and, but see, you start to believe that there's a power available in you and for you that is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that there's a power of perception that, that, that can change the way you're viewing things so that even if your circumstances don't change, you might be able to bear up under them. That you might see Paul, he's talking about this, but he encountered this. He prayed over and over and over. You know, the thorn in the flesh, but we don't know what it was. But he prayed over and over and over, God, please, get rid of this thing. God said, "Mm mm-mm. But tell you what, do. Learn to delight in this insults and hardships and bad backs. Because when your power has reached an end, you know, when you have a hand tied behind your back, like we talked earlier, then my power becomes manifest. Because then it comes really present. My grace really is sufficient. My grace really can fortify you. My grace really can see you through the darkest, most unseemly things. And so Paul could say, and it's been recorded for us, that when I call out to God in my great weakness, then I actually have some kind of phenomenal power to expect so even though you're not getting answers sometimes to your biggest quandaries not yet you will the bible thinks life's short and eternity's long paradise won't come by next tuesday but life in the new age will come and all your sorrows will be undone but he thinks your glorious father will sustain you he thinks your glorious father will will listen and be touched by your audacity in asking. That's why you can keep asking, like the Apostle Paul, instead of not expecting nothing. Some of you have read and are reading a book called Dispatches from Pluto. It was written by Richard Grant, a British man who, with his live-in lady, moves to another country called Mississippi. It may as well be for him, 
in the Mississippi Delta, they buy an old plantation house, and it's, it's dealing with all the complexities and wonders of the, the Mississippi Delta. It's phenomenal. And he tells a story, and he says this peculiar thing. He says, and I learned the effectiveness of a well-aimed piece of meat. And I thought, well, Richard Grant, that's a peculiar thing to say. And thankfully, as a writer, he elaborated. There were these men sitting around a card table playing cards in the Delta. They had been uh, slamming the pilsners. Things were getting a little heated. They were getting a little sideways with each other. A fight was a brewing. Boys were about to be bowing up on each other. But there was hind quarters of a recently deceased or murdered deer because it was hunting season. And in the middle of this brewing fight, someone picked up the hindquarters of this deer and slung it across the table. You could see the fat glistening under the light as it soared past. And the man recounting the story says, when them hindquarters landed on the other side of the table with a startling thud, you can bet that changed the subject. It changed the subject entirely when this carcass was thrown into the middle of a brewing fight. A preoccupation with something silly, no doubt, that was fanned into flame by drunkenness and card playing. As these men were about to bow up, this death placed in the center of them changed the subject. It made them aware of new things. It opened their eyes to new realities. Mary Carr, the poet, when she became a Christian out of alcoholism, she said, why do they have the bloody carcass on the cross? Why couldn't redemption happen just by jump roping and saying jump rope rhymes three times and then boom, you're redeemed? And her son says to her, if you could just say some rhymes, who would pay attention to that? The apostle knows when you doubt God, when you start to think, uh, maybe he's not good, maybe he's not going to do anything, he knows that there's a sacrifice at the center of the table of the world that has been hurled into it that says, let's change the subject for a minute. Because there's been provision made in the sacrifice of the Son, by which the world is now being righted, by which you yourself are righted. There's sacrifice that makes you pleasant to God. Let that change the subject so you can draw near with all your angst and all your anger and all your expectation. And so you can imagine that the glorious Father who has made sure that the world's unwellness will be satisfied. And that you yourself will be healed and all those you love and that you will be accepted because of that work and because of none other. Then you can start to say, well, maybe this God's to be trusted. Maybe his plans are bigger than my own. Maybe he can visit me and mine, even in the middle of these travails. It's easy to not expect nothing. But the scriptures don't want you to expect nothing. 
I want you to expect the resurrected Christ to literally be with you, putting poetry and hums back in your heart when you've become deflated, acting to change perceptions in yourself and in the people around you, and carrying you in the very hard work of endurance until we see him face to face. Oh, I pray that you and I, with the Apostle Paul, would have eyes enlightened, that those lights would be flicked on, and we'd have glittering eyes to see afresh that our God is worthy to be known and worthy at all times to be praised. Amen.